Welcome to the State of Sound podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. A companion series to the blockbuster exhibit, The State of Sound, a world of music from Illinois. Now playing at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Welcome to the State of Sound podcast. I'm Lance Tauzer. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Jeff Murphy from the band Shoes, live in our State of Sound studio here in the gallery. Jeff, thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so we're, the setting that we're in is a little unique. Uh, we have our guest in the studio. Sometimes they're on the phone. Sometimes they're live here. Um, what did you? What were your initial takeaways of the exhibit? I mean, you've only had like ten minutes to walk through it, but. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I love anything music. So, of course, everything is interesting to me. Growing up in, in the Chicagoland area, listening to Chicago radio from the time I was young, um, you know, you were exposed to every different genre on the radio. That that was the, the thing. The radio was much more, uh, what do I want to say? Um, it, it wasn't as segmented as it is now. Back then, you would hear... Um, you know, Motown, the San Francisco sound, the, the Detroit sound, the Philly sound, Chicago sound, one right after another. And so you were, you're indoctrinated into all of that great stuff um, from Stevie Wonder and, 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 you know, or Motown or, or, or uh, uh, you know, what was happening in Detroit. Uh, it, it was, it was, it was all part of you. So to come in here and see the actual guitar or the actual instrument that this person played to me, I mean, we're all we're fans, which is why, and and you are as well. Why we get into that is because we just love it. You just love being around that stuff. So if, I I find it fascinating. Thank you. Well, yeah, it was a labor of love for sure, and we really wanted to put on an exhibit that not only sort of told Illinois' story, uh, you know, make a case for what Illinois has offered the world, mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted it to be more than a memorabilia show. I wanted to borrow artifacts from people, uh, specific artifacts that help tell their story. So when I reached out to you. I said, I'm doing this show. I really love to include something from shoes. What do you have? And so maybe tell me a little bit about the artifact that you loaned us. Um, the Hamer guitar that's here was uh, something that we, we came to be known, or we came to know Hamer guitars through Cheap Trick, seeing them in the clubs. The first time uh, we saw Rick play a, a Hamer standard, I had never seen that design before. And I literally thought that he had taken a piece of formica and, a, and a, a jigsaw and cut that shape out and put a neck on it. So we came, we we, we learned what Hamer was and came to know the guys from Hamer and started using their instruments. And um, in probably mid '79, then uh, we we started to order them because they were all handmade in in um, I think they were in Evanston at that point, or maybe they were in Palatine. I can't recall. Um, wherever. And so um, we ordered these guitars, hoping we would have them in time to do this video that we were, we, we had just come back from England, uh, but they weren't ready in time. So we, ha we owned a few, but most of the guitars that we're playing in the videos were, were on loan from Hamer. <laughs> they would less, well, yours isn't ready, but here, take this one. <laughs> and um, so I wanted something different. I liked the different shape of it. Um, I ordered it blue but I wanted you to be able to see that beautiful uh, wood grain underneath. Yeah. So it was translucent, very deep, almost a cobalt blue, and uh, a logo that John had written on the side. We had that uh, silk screened into the finish and laid the knobs out differently than normal. Um, it was the first blue guitar. They didn't also had not done gold hardware, so that was something new for them at the time. And um, 
unfortunately, it, it didn't get finished in time for the, to, for the video, but they delivered it to us um, on my 25th birthday back in uh, 1979. On, uh, uh, we were playing a club called Haymakers in Wheeling. Very famous club. Yeah, yeah, and one of the one of the great clubs to go see a band at in the in the Chicago metro area back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it, it was it was really something to have a handmade guitar and something that was designed just for you. Uh, I we, I mean, and Gary, I know, still has a number of. We've gone through a number of guitars over the years, as we all do. You know, you you, you buy, you trade, you swap. Um, but I know Gary probably still has at least a half a dozen of them. Um, I might have two. I can't remember how many I have, but um, great, great company. And uh, um, I really cherish it because now uh, the company has been bought and sold. And I don't even know if they are still manufacturing under that name. I think, I think they still make uh, Hamer guitar brands, but they're made out of China or somewhere. Right. So it's really just a name only right. in the shape of their original. Uh, not, I don't even know if they're doing sort of that standard or Explorer style this, anymore. Even. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, they are, there a good story here in Illinois the, of a of a of a guitar company that sort of was going up against Gibson and some of these big big and making really comparable uh, quality guitars and so that's pretty special is what you're saying. Yes, it was very special, and um, I remember they had a, they they had a factory. It must must have been in Wheeling where they had it, and and they were having a Christmas party that year, so they invited us to go, and uh, there were a, a lot of musicians, and of course. Almost everybody in the crowd was a guitar player or a bass player because that's what they were selling. And uh, they had no drummer. <laughs> so they had this setup for people to get up and jam, but they had no drummer. So my brother goes, well, I'll play. <laughs> it's like, John, you don't play drums. But he, he, he knew enough that he could just get up there and play a pretty straight beat. And he got up there while these people were going and jamming on the guitars. So, so it was really a fun, uh, our memory of Hamer at the time was really a fun thing. That's awesome. Thank you again for loaning it to us. People have really enjoyed not only your guitar, but seeing these artifacts that have such a, uh, you know, a story to tell and have such a special meaning to the artist. Uh, You know, I'm very privileged that a lot of these artists took the time like you did to think about what you would loan us. And uh, we're very much appreciative of that. Um, My first real question about your musical background is, the band and you and yourself from Zion, Illinois, and not even really a Chicago suburb. It's so far up there. Yeah. Um, but it is the hub of the music industry. <laughs> you have to admit that. <laughs> well, it was for a long time. Absolutely. <laughs> but what was it about? Uh, you're from Zion, but what was the music scene there? Or, or there was how, none. Oh, okay. So there was no cult. You didn't come out of a, uh, of a scene or a culture. You guys just grew out of the ground and. Yes. And, I mean, it was really Chicago radio that, that um, inspired us. Uh, and it, you know, you, you, you just say, oh, geez, I wish I could do that. I mean, and we were, we were of an age where we were able to see, uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when they first came out, which was life changing. I mean, it was, you either loved them or hated them. And one week you hated them, the next week you loved them. It was like, you know, you're young. So you're just, oh, I don't know, depending on who you were hanging around with, but they had such a cultural impact. And, and through the years, it just became, you judged everything musically by them. I mean, John and my brother and I marked time by what Beatle album came out at what time. You know, we'll say, oh, yeah, uh, I remember when, you know, 1965, uh, December 3rd, 65, that's when, you know, Rubber Soul and the, that uh, uh, We Can Work It Out single came out. You, you, 
it, it represented your life. But all music, like I said, it was such a, a, a melting pot. Chicago radio was such a melting pot of different styles that there were so many things that that came out at the same time. And even though we focused on that uh, guitar, melodic rock thing, um, the influences of bands like, well, well, you know, Spencer Davis group or whatever, have such a, you know, you just, I mean, have you heard a cooler organ than the opening of, oh, yeah. you know, um, uh, give me some love. Give me some love. Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. And so, so you, you, you carry that with you. And then we were out of high school um, but John and Gary, John met Gary in high school and they started to be friends and they started, they started putting out this magazine. It was kind of like a high school version of national lampoon. <laughs> um, you had the official school paper and then you had what they were doing, which mm. was, they called it Lime magazine, which was a takeoff of time, of course. And it was pretty for that era. It was, it was, I mean, you know, it wasn't obscene because they cheeky. couldn't be obscene. Cheeky. It was cheeky. <laughs> they would make fun of the faculty and personnel. And, you know, sure. uh, uh, my brother was a great um, cartoonist and, and he would draw like, you know, an, a page, a cartoon of the janitor, you know, and, 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 and uh, it was stuff like that. So they got, there was a clique of guys in high school, the Lime Boys, they, yeah. as they came to be known. And I was younger. Um, so to me, I always hung around with the older guys because that was cool. You know, sure. They were cool. And John and Gary had this idea to, to start a band called Shoes. Um, and I was into, I was a geek. I was into this gear and electronics and all that. I had gotten one of those little tape recorders when I was, I don't know, eight, seven or eight with the little reels, the little reels. Oh, yeah, reel. sure. And I would record things off a of TV. I just love the mechanics and the, and the audio and all, all that stuff. So when TIAC introduced their first uh, consumer level multi-track tape machine, which was the 3340. You could actually record four tracks in sync where you could record something on each channel mm. independently and have it all play together. So I ordered one and that was what, that was our, I guess you'd say our mentor that gave the three of us the ability to, experiment and learn and try to see if that works things that we would never have the we're all pretty introverted when we get into a crowd so be, being on stage was something we just thought we'd never do but recording you know if you made a mistake you just push that red button and it's gone you know no one, <laughs> no one gets to hear the mistakes right so we learned um and taking all those influences that we we had from the past um you know the 20 years, 18 years, whatever it was, of, of music and fusing it into what we, what we could do, um, which is very limited. And we learned how to sing and write and play and record all at the same time. Yeah. All right. So bands that, that are comprised of siblings have, in many cases, had very mixed results. The Kinks, famously, Oasis, of course. Uh, there have been some ones that, that worked out. Everly Brothers. There you go. Well, there's a classic example. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in. You are still in a band with your with your brother, your older yeah. brother. Um, what was that sort of dynamic like? Uh, would Gary ever get between you, or uh, how is how has that all worked? out? You know, it, it's the structure of of our band is um, John is probably the most. Uh, he's kind of Switzerland, and Gary and I would usually have 
the the strongest uh, opinions, and it would be a I don't want to say a battle of wills because that sounds too 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 uh, too much of conflict. Yeah. But I mean, if if he had an idea and I had a, an idea, we would we would try to meld it together. Huh. But but we were always all about one thing, and that is we're in a three man sack race. Nobody runs faster than anybody else. There is no leader. There's no follower. We didn't want one guy driving a Volkswagen while someone else is driving a Cadillac. So when we established our publishing company, which we did, I want to say it was in 1977, um, it was important to us that no matter who writes the song, it all goes into one account, and which we each own a third, and it eliminates that squabbling. Right. Um, John and I went through a, tra- a, a tragedy when we were young. Our father, um, I'll say disappeared, but he really left, abandoned us uh, when we were uh, seven. I, I was seven, I think. John was eight. And I think that is part of what bonded us. Because now, you know, survival, it was just he and I and my mom. And my mom wasn't working. She was a t- typical 60s housewife. Right. Didn't have a job, didn't have a car, didn't have a driver's license. And one day... She, she lost the car because he took it, and um, she's got a mortgage, two kids, and no job. So you band together. And so John and I, very rare for us to have a really uh, tumultuous disagreement or fight. I, I can only think of, in the last 45 years, I can only think of two where we really, really got upset with each other, um, which lasts about a day, you know, <laughs> if... I said to Gary, I'll quit this band before I fight with my brother mm. um, at the time. And um, that was, that's the thing is, is John and I, and, and because we were so close together, we're a year apart, we're yeah. Irish, Irish twins. Right. We're a year apart. Um, we experienced everything almost identically. So, so because of that, it's very easy to identify. Uh, even now, I mean, I talk to John and Gary almost every single day. Um, we never broke up. Um, there have been times that we go through, uh, um, I guess I'd say dormant periods. Sure. And a lot of it is dormant on the outside. In other words, like I'd said to you before we started uh, t- a taping here, is is we've been working on things, recording things for you know since the last album came out. The most recent album was in uh, what was it 2012, but that doesn't mean we're not doing something. You know, writing, recording, um, or at least. Um, still involved in music in some way. The big problem to us is is figuring out what to do. Uh, the industry, as we knew it when we got into it back mm-hmm. in the 70s, is completely different now. It doesn't exist. All of the, um, I guess you would say, uh, we would set what we called attainable goals. Um, at first it was, boy, if we can just get a, a, a something recorded. Then it was like, if we could, if we could just get a, a record out. So we started pressing our own records. And then it was, if we can just get a record deal. And, you know, you just keep moving that carrot mm-hmm. on the stick farther away. And all of the things that, that we aspired to, like getting a record out, getting songs on the radio, getting on the charts. Um, you know, then MTV came along, being on MTV. All those things are gone. They, they don't have the impact. So now you have to realign and recalibrate and say, okay, what is it you want to do now? Um, and we still love making music, but it's hard to create something that's not going to be enjoyed or used or viewed or listened to. So um, 
we yeah we struggle with that aspect of it what sure how do we do it i don't know if anybody's completely figured that out No, it's a as you said, it's a whole new ball game, and people are making records in their bedrooms that are winning Grammys, and Yay. It, is, it is it is quite a quite a different uh, quite a different scene, and it seemingly I, I guess maybe the mindset before was you made a record and then you went on tour to promote that record, and nowadays uh, people are just playing to make their money, and their music comes out willy nilly or very you know it it isn't that that formula of record tour, record tour or whatever, or record promote or whatever it is. Uh, it, like you said, there are no rules. So everyone makes their own way. And yeah. I love it when people do things different. Um, I was, I was uh, listening to NPR the other day and I heard someone say, and I don't know if this is an exact quote, but it was, um, he, they were talking about um, Machiavelli and saying that um, uh, he said something to the effect of, uh, if you do something new or different, you will be hated for it. And I thought, I remember when we first started, there was a lot of resentment towards us because of the fact that we weren't doing it the way everyone said that you had to do it, which right. was you get out in the club and you play and you play and you play and you play and you establish an audience. Our approach was, if I looked at my record collection at the time, the only record I can think of that I saw the band first and then I bought the record was Cheap Trick. And that was because I started seeing them in the clubs before they had a record deal. Right. But it made sense to us if there's a, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Right. The record was, that was, that was it for us. Mm -hmm. That's how I got to know this great uh, arrangement variety of music was from hearing those records. And then I would go see them play live. And I thought, then why is it that we're supposed to go play live first um, which, like I said, we didn't have the confidence to do. Um, and when we went on our first tour, after we signed our deal with, with Electra, it was two of the most embarrassing weeks of my life. It was horrible. It was horrible. We, we, we were so green and so ignorant to things. Uh, number one, we didn't know what a, anyone to be in a crew. Right. And when you're touring, your crew, you live and die based on what right. they do. Um, and our crew not only well, so we had, we, we said to the record company, how do we get a crew? So they got a couple of people from a one audio in Los Angeles and flew them out to us. Well, they knew less than we did. Huh. You know, we, we, we realized we weren't being given the, the, the a listers from, from the company. It was, you know, Hey, who, who can we send to Illinois? <laughs> so, so, um, who was willing to come to Illinois? Yeah. Right? Well, and it was really cold cause it was, we, and this is another mistake. We started touring at the end of November, about this time of year. Mm. And it was, it was really a cold year and the, the guys get off the plane and they're wearing t-shirts and jeans. They didn't even bring coats. And it was <laughs> literally, you know, we were having temperatures in, you know, zero degrees right. at the time. So, Every show, there was some disaster. After the very first show, we fired the sound man. He was so bad. Um, at the first gig, we walked. We had paid all this money to get this really nice monitor system because we were trying to do these harmonies, three-part harmonies. And at the first show, we walk up to sing three, the three-part, and it was the loudest feedback I ever heard in my life, so much so that I, I, I went dizzy. You know, where it screws up your uh, yeah, equilibrium. It rattled you, huh? And yeah. it blew every 
a tweeter out of the monitors all at one time. Wham! Gone. My hearing's gone. And um, and I was playing that Blue Hammer, I believe it was. And at Soundcheck, I said to the roadie, I said, can you put some new strings on that thing? I mean, I, I forgot to change them. Can you change that? So he changed strings. And well, he didn't know how, he didn't tell me he didn't know how to restring a guitar. Oh, jeez. So when I, when I, you know, lights come on, shoes, here they are. Uh, hit hit the first chord and three strings literally pulled off the guitar because he didn't know that he had to go around the oh my god the tuning peg more than a couple of times. So I'm standing with a guitar with three strings on it that's screaming out of tune. The monitors are blown. I'm deaf from the feedback. And I forgot to mention this. Um, Time Magazine was doing a, a, a an article about The Who, a cover story about The Who. And the, and the sidebar article was the second generation of rock shoes. So they sent a, uh, a writer and a photographer on the tour. Oh. They are sitting watching this disaster happen. And it was, like I said, most of me, I didn't, also didn't mention, I, I'd recently broken up with my girlfriend, and she shows up and is sitting in the front row crying. Oh, my God. So this was really a stressful night for me. <laughs> it's a convergence. <laughs> More than one way. So, so when... when uh, we fired the sound guy the first night. Next <laughs> night, we, you know, it was just day after day of these disasters. Expensive because back then you took your own PA on the sure. road with you. Okay. So it was our gear. You know, we weren't renting this stuff. And uh, oh, it was just, uh, we played a place in Indianapolis. I want to say it was the, the Vogue Theater. And um, the crew, the gear flipped on its back and rolled and it unplugged the input cables to the power amps from the from the crossover and they didn't realize it so when they turned everything on if you ever ground if you ever turn oh, an amp yeah. on when it's grounded it blew every high frequency speaker in the pa system before we even started the show so when we come out like this which was a disaster That's i nice. wore bowling shoes which was a mistake that night because it was a wooden stage so i'm sliding around like i'm on ice skates and the 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 guy <laughs> for monitors, he kept saying, turn your amps down. I'll feed them to you through the monitors. Uh -huh. Turn down as quiet as you can. So we turned our amps down, and we don't play that loud anyhow. Right. I play a high watt uh, 50. Gary was playing Marshall 50 at the time. We were, had them down pretty low. Feed them to us through the monitors. We have to hear that. Right. I look over, and the microphone for Gary's amp is laying on the floor. They forgot to put it in the stand. Oh, it's laying yeah. on the floor. It was things like that. Oh, and that was the night that the bigwigs from Electra flew in to see how, oh, how the geez. tour support was going. Nope, nope. I said, I'm never going to get on stage again. This is it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. Wow. It, it was, it was uh, two weeks of hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I met you a long time ago, but even at that point in the mid-'80s, you had had enough of, of touring even by then. You, uh, I think you used to have sort of a, an ethos about it that, that the amount of work that you guys put into making your record could never be recreated live. So why attempt it? Am I, am I paraphrasing that? No, the, that's very, very true. I mean, again, a lot of the things that we liked, I mean, I love, I, I love the Beatles since the beginning, but when things really got interesting to me was when they started to craft the albums, which was from Rubber Soul on. Right. Uh, Sgt. Pepper, they never even played those songs live. And, f and most of their stuff from that point was never performed live because they were weaving these songs together. Uh, that's the way we always built songs. So to try to recreate that live, you would have to be a cover band and say, um, Led Zeppelin was, was one of those examples that I think of how 
people listen to their records and they go, oh man, I love Led Zeppelin. But when I saw them live, they just didn't sound like it. Well, right. you got one guitar player in the band. There's one guitar, but you listen to a Led Zeppelin record, there might be four guitar parts going on at the same time, oh, maybe yeah. five. And that's all played by Jimmy. Right. But when he plays live then, he has to homogenize that into one one guitar part. Right. That's what you do. You become a cover band for your own material and say, right. okay, what can I eliminate and what do I have to play to make it still sound like the song? Right, because so. people will say, if they love the record, they will compare it to your live show no yes. matter what. You're held to a very high standard, yep. wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh, and they didn't sound like their record. And you say, well, that's because you're act asking, yeah, yeah, I like the Mona Lisa, but not, can he paint it in front of an audience in a wall? <laughs> you know, you say, ah, that's, yeah. that's not, maybe. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of my favorite stories about your band, um, and, and I don't make a lot of comparisons to other bands at all, but... Uh, there's obviously the very funny movie Spinal Tap and they go through a lot of drummers and shoes uh, famously have gone through. I don't know if any of them spontaneously combusted or no. were killed in a bizarre gardening accident or whatever the <laughs> yeah. spinal. What was that time at the Mexican <laughs> restaurant? But uh, there's always really just been the three of you and the drummer was sort of, and then there's Skip yes. or whoever yes. else. So Well, it, you know, um, again, the shoes, the core is still the three of us, John, Gary, and myself, um, I always looked at my role as sort of the George Harrison to their Lennon McCartney because I respected they were both older and and that was their initial concept. I was never really even asked to be in the band formally. It was through a, a kind of just uh, attrition, I guess you'd say. Maybe they will sometimes. So yeah, hopefully. I'm hoping for that yeah. invite. Um, but because I own the gear, I had to be there for for the four track. Nice. And so, well done. so you end up just working together and. Um, and I remembered when, if Gary would get upset to me, he would make comments to John, like, you got to get Jeff in line here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was, it, it was, the, it was the three of us. And when we did our first recordings together as shoes, um, we didn't have a drummer. So we did, we recorded everything that we could. And then we left one track open for, um, Hey, we know a guy from high school. We used to go to school with, he's got drums. Why don't we go over to his house and see if he can put drums on it? Uh, Andy Joseph was his name. So he played on the, that, those first 10 songs that we recorded. And then the next record, I had run into, um, I was out of school by then, but uh, a friend of mine from school, he was a drummer. He played in, in, in a school band and everything. And um, I was moving out from my parents for the first time. So we decided we'll rent a, a flat together and we can set the band up there. So drums, literally, it was a converted garage on a concrete slab. The furnace was a space heater that was in the main, I'll call it the living room, <laughs> um, but you could not close any of the door. There was two doors, one to the bathroom and one to the bedroom. You couldn't close the doors because there was no duct work. So the only heat that would get into the other rooms was if you left the doors open. <laughs> and we had the recording gear in the kitchen and the PA and the band was set up in the living room. And then we would have one guy, if we were, we were tracking something, uh, we would have somebody in the bedroom with a guitar and, and, the, and Skip was playing drums. Oh, well, actually, I'm sorry. I was talking about Barry Shoemaker was my friend from high school. Ah. He was the second drummer. And Gary was in France at the time uh, going to school at the U of I um, Extension in Versailles. Oh, fun. Stu studying architecture. So John and I thought, why don't we surprise him? Why don't we surprise Gary, do a whole album, and show him how serious we are about this band thing? So Barry was a great drummer, and uh, we record, started recording these songs. John would come home from U of I. John was going to U of I um, in Champagne, 
So he would come home on spring break and we would record his stuff. And then I would work on stuff on my own. And then he would come and put bass and stuff on it. And Barry played drums on that. And, uh, and, and Barry, like I said, had been in the high, in the, in that junior high and high school band. And he said, Oh yeah, we recorded an album. And I said, what? And he showed me this record that, you know, like uh, the central junior high marching band. And, I, and it, at that moment, it dawned on me, you don't have to be part of Capitol or CBS or Warner Brothers to have a record. You can go to a pressing plant and get records made. So I called. There were, I think there were two pressing plants in Chicago at the time. And uh, I, Rainbow and uh, I can't remember. I don't remember what yeah. they were called. Yeah. Go, sorry, and, go ahead. <laughs> no. And, and so I called them up. And we said, let's press up some records and send one to Gary. It'll freak him out because he's in France. You know, he doesn't know any of this. And there was a postal strike going on in France at the time. So mail was very intermittent. Uh. And we wouldn't hear from him for you know, weeks or months at a time. And John would write back these, John and Gary would exchange these letters back and forth. And they were both very good caricature drawings. And they would draw these pictures of shoes on stage in front of a throng of thousands. You know, <laughs> this pi total pipe dream thing. And... Um, we couldn't get the records made in time, pressed up in time to, to surprise Gary, but we sent him a cassette. And um, a friend of mine printed the local newspaper in Zion. And so I had the idea and convinced him to let me come in because I, I was learning how to print for a living. That's what I was kind of working in a factory, a printing shop. And um, we snuck in one night and I created this whole sub newspaper and it was all about shoes. Like this musical phenomenon coming from Zion <laughs> and, and all the, again, it was just all this crap that it was untrue. Wrote all these fake newsletters and and fan letters and and talking about this big show that was going to happen when Gary got back from France. And we knew Gary got the newspaper delivered to him in France, so we found his subscription and I inserted that page, or it was actually I think it was a twelve page section that inserted that section into his copy of the Zion Benton News. And he said, it was perfect. He said he got on the, the bus, you know, you picture in your mind, he gets on the bus, he's standing there, he tosses this thing under his arm, you know, and, and he got this cassette tape. He's like, what? And he's, he didn't think it was us. He thought we were pulling his leg when oh. we gave him the first, uh, what became one of Versailles. Um, so we were always doing things like that back and forth. Um, we played our, when Gary came back, then we recorded something with Barry and, uh, as the drummer uh, called Bazooka. That was the next album. Right. Uh, and then we played our first ever show at the Broad Stop in, in uh, Kenosha right. uh, in 1976. Broad Stop, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and after that show, the drummer, drummer's girlfriend wasn't real keen on him being on stage. Mm. And um, so he, uh, within a couple of weeks, he said, you know, I'm not as serious about it as you guys are. Um, I'm gonna, I am going to move out and, you know, you can get a different drummer. Which was, I mean, and Barry and I got along great. We, there was never, we never had any issues at all. Um, so he went out, he was working at Camelot Music. Um, and so we went on the hunt for another drummer. And uh, Gary didn't really want to, but then he said, well, there's this drummer that's going out with my sister. And John went to see that band, and it was a cover band. But he said, he seems solid and, and straightforward and not overly showy. You know, we weren't into drum solos or right. spinning sticks or, you know, right. uh, lighting your hair on fire. And so uh, we, we had Skip come and audition. And uh, then we drove down to Dwight, Illinois, and did our first show with Skip as the drummer there in, in a park pavilion. 
And uh, Skip was with us then uh, until uh, 84, after the electric deal expired. Well, we, we, we were bought out of that contract. After that was over, we built our own commercial studio. And Skip, you know, drummers lo- want to be in front of an audience. They love to be. It's a physical thing. Right. Um, so uh, we haven't had a permanent drummer in the band since Skip in 84, but we've had... Mike Zelenko from Material Issue played sure. on, on some stuff. Rick Menk from uh, um, Velvet Crush and Choo Choo Train, he played on some stuff for us. And um, for the last 25 years, we've used uh, John Richardson, who is sort of a freelance uh, hired gun, but has been a friend. Of, he was the younger brother of a sound man that we picked up after that really disastrous tour in 79 when everything <laughs> went wrong. We've found his brother as a sound man and he saved us he he gave us confidence on the road and and knew how to do things the right way and he kept saying you got to hear my little brother he's great on drums we're like yeah 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 and then he called up one time and said he's playing at metro i want to say what was the band i warsaw oh well yeah Yeah. that's sort of an industrial band they were opening they're featured in the exhibit they were opening for them Uh and so i went down and we were like Oh man, this kid can play drums, yeah. and um, so we've used him um, ever since. That's and awesome. uh, it's yeah, so so we have had a bevy of drummers, no <laughs> doubt. None of them have exploded. That's None good of, to know. Not, not right. to the best of my knowledge. Good to know. Well, you actually uh, pick up on a couple of things. I, I want you to tell the story about how you got signed to Electric because I have, you've told me that story probably 30 years ago now. Mm. Is it 30 years? Yeah. I can't remember. And I've told it and probably changed it over the years because I don't know if I've sensationalized it or whatever, but there was a, there's a story about where you sent your materials into at Electra and who discovered you slash got you signed. Can you walk me through that? Well, yeah, what happened was we, we kept doing what we, we discovered that record labels were sort of like um, lemmings or sheep, where what, what, if, if they think there's something valuable, they all come running and they follow that, you know. And we started, but when we finished the album Black Vinyl Shoes, which was also recorded in my living room, on that four-track TX, right. uh, we pressed up a thousand copies and started sending it out to the press. And uh, the Illinois Entertainer was ran the first ever review, Bill Page, and it was that was uh, great. He would say, um, "I told you, you should play it for this guy. He writes for this magazine, and he's a friend, Carrie Baker and and uh, Moira McCormick." And we came to know all these Chicago press people, mm. and it just kept growing. And we were it was stupid luck, dumb luck, of timing where the DIY movement was happening. Yeah, that punk and rock thing. Punk, the punk yeah. rock thing. And even though our music wasn't punk rock, the ethos of recording and doing it yourself, right. we were all about that. The yeah. only thing we weren't doing was turning on people's turntables and putting the record on form. We were pressing, manufacturing, recording, writing, singing, distributing, manufacturing. We were doing every aspect of it out of my living room. So these people started smelling around. We, um, we started uh, getting press from, uh, there's a, a magazine out of California called Bomp, which is run by an, uh, an entrepreneur called Greg Shaw. And his, Greg and his wife, Susie Shaw. And they flew in to see us play, bought every copy that we had left of Black Vinyl Shoes to, to send overseas. 
and wanted us to record for his label a single. Mm. He said, the song I want you to redo is, is t- t- okay from, uh, from Black Vinyl Shoes. Yeah. And being the democratic band that we were, like I was saying, it's, it was all, we were all about everybody being equal. When you have a two-sided record, a single, right. you got one guy that wrote the song on one side. What do you do on side B? Who gets the other song? Right. Our solution was the other two guy write the song. So Gary and I sat down and wrote Tomorrow Night together. And so that satisfied all three songwriters appearing on one single. And then we licensed the, relicensed the Black Vinyl Shoes album to a label called PVC, which was part of Gem, which was the label that broke Cheap Trick more or less. Right. Even though Cheap Trick was signed to CBS, CBS turn, in America turned down the Budokan record. I know. And yeah, you famously, know, yes, and <laughs> stupidly, right? Because that's what they were about, right? Um, and we love those guys, yeah. And when that happened, that record was a hit for Gem, and it really broke Cheap Trick. So we that gave that label credibility to us. So we licensed that. So that that record, Black Final Shoes, for us had a second life. Then it got reissued in '78, mm. a year after we issued it, and that's when people really started to write about it. Um, you know, the New York rocker and, and um, you know, Trouser Press and, and these publications that were really starting to take hold. So people started coming around. Uh, one of those people was um, Seymour Stein from Sire Records. And um, Sire flew, uh, or Seymour flew in a, um, more than one occasion. I'm thinking two or three different occasions that he flew in. And we would go, he would say, Talking Heads are playing at Park West tonight. You want to go? We say, okay. So we'd go and check them out, and then he would kind of talk about, and we didn't really understand record deals. Um, so we didn't know much about budgets or how things, when do we get paid, how do we get paid? You know, how do we survive right. from, from January to February? Right. Um, and so we were, I won't say negotiating, but we were learning more from Seymour. And um, uh, that was in January of 79, by the time, it was in late 78, early 79. January of 79, Seymour came in. We had a meeting and he said, look, I'm flying to, to meet him to France. They have this music conference. Yeah. I'll come back. We'll talk when I get back. While he was gone, I got a call at my house and it was, um, it was Kenny Batiste from Electra Records. He was the, vice, the new vice president of Electra Records. Um, Electra was not a big label. They were in terms of success and visibility because they had the car. They'd just broken the cars, right. you know, which was the huge, hugely successful. But they also had Queen and, um, uh, oh, geez, I can't even think of all the bands that were on uh, yeah. Electra. Well, The Doors, of course, back in the sure, day. Sure, sure, back in the day. Yeah. But, but they, they were considered sort of a country club label because they might only sign 15 or 20 new acts a, a year. But Kenny had been a, a, a local promotion guy from Detroit, and he helped break the Cars record. So that gave him the, the uh, leverage to say, I want to, you know, they promoted him to head of promotion. Right. But he said, I really want to start signing bands. So we were the first band that he came in to see. And we played, we were set up to play, rehearse and play live. We played for him. We had recorded present tense in its, in our eight, well, then we had gone to an eight-track machine. We, we had the album completely recorded. We played that for him. We played live for him. 
We went to dinner. He said, there'll be tickets at the airport. Meet me in LA. Bring your lawyer. And wow. because he wanted to sign bands. And we were the first band that he signed. Um, it was a fantastic deal. Uh, we had veto power over the, the songs. We owned 100% of our publishing. They paid us 100% of the publishing. If, if As you know, oh, yeah, that's a big uh, deal. labels will say, oh, we'd like a discount rate or a preferred rate. And, and so they'd only pay you 75% of what you're supposed to get. Right. Um, they will also... Um, limit you well they won't limit you to how many songs you can put on a record but they're only going to pay you for 10 so so most bands only put 10 songs on right we wanted to do the Beatle thing and have more songs on sure. so we wanted 12 so we had a deal they had to pay us 100% royalty on that 12 song album and like I said we owned all the publishing um, and we got um, a say on who who we worked with where we worked what songs were on it we had control over all that stuff we had a budget, um, every budget was well into six figures for recording, and anything that we didn't spend, we got to keep. So if we came in under budget by 50 grand, pocket it, you get to go to lunch, you know? Nice. <laughs> so, so it was really a wonderful deal with Electra. And um, it was, they're all structured like athletic deals where you have option periods. Ours was structured as a, as a, a nine-album deal with a 10th-album override, which was um, a best-of collection. And then the option periods were after every two records where, where they could get out or we could get out. Mm. And, um, yeah, so when we got signed, then it was a, it was a parade of different producers. Where we wanna, to, who do you want to work with? Where do you want to go? So we were, people were flying. I remember Chris Kimsey flew in. Uh, he was working with the Stones on, I want to say it was Some Girls, and um, It'd be about the right time, yeah. Yeah, and he said, um, "I got to get back. I'm doing the Stones tonight. Got to go." But it was cool that these people were coming to Zion, Illinois. I mean, there was nothing in Zion. Uh, growing up in Zion was was if you if you took Mayberry and uh, <laughs> and threw in a religious element, <laughs> then you had Zion. Right. And Zion was founded as as sort of a religious commune. Right. Back in the turn of the century. Hence the name Zion. Yeah. yeah. And and. Um, I mean, as a kid growing up there, you had no idea. You didn't, you know, but then it was like, gee, how come all the stores are closed on Sunday? <laughs> you know? And so there's no bars, right? which meant dry town, no right? clubs, which right. meant no music scene. Right. So yeah, the music scene was just what we heard on the radio and what we created within our own uh, self. So was Seymour uh, a little ticked off when he got back from France <laughs> to find out that you, you know, signed with Electra? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a kind of a weird thing. Um, Oops. I remember um, I had, I was producing uh, people uh, years later and I remember one of them had an interview with, with Seymour and they were talking and saying, Oh yeah, Jeff Murphy from shoes recorded this. And he said, uh, Oh yeah, I was going to sign them, but they were too religious. <laughs> So he remembered the town and somehow conf conf confused that with, with us as a band. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but Seymour was there first. He seemed always, and, and I remember him telling us, oh, I'm, I just signed this band. He's this English band, but it's got this, this girl singer from America. She's from Ohio, Pretenders. Yeah. And he, he, was, he was just signing this girl from Detroit, you know, Madonna. It was, it was that time period where he was, yeah. but he had the Ramones. That was big for us. Sure. Because we were huge Ramones fans. Yeah. Um, and, and the Talking Heads, those were pro very progressive and different, uh, which we, d we really dug that. Yeah. And you guys have always had that sort of 
connection with the critics. The the person who wrote this exhibit, Dave Hoekstra, wrote for the Sun Times for thirty years. Right, Dave. And we were having lots of meetings about what bands did we want to feature in the exhibit, and and uh, when the shoes came up, uh, when shoes came up, uh, he said, "Well, I, I wrote. I think I wrote reviews of most of their records in the in the in the Sun Times." And yeah, you you definitely had the critics on your side. A lot of a lot of artists put out records and they just get trashed by uh, as either being derivative or they're there's not enough originality or, or they can see through the, there's not enough honesty or whatever it is. Uh, your band has always had this regard that must actually give you a, a little sense of, you know, pride about the work that you've done that these people that hear everything coming through the mail or through the door or whatever it is, they, they regarded your music very favorably. Uh, that must've, yeah, we, we were always resonated incredibly uh, fortunate and we really felt uh, flattered and, and blessed that, that, that even people that, that were infamous for being pretty harsh critics, um, we had a lot of really good press and of course, I mean, you know, the record label would say, well, you know, good reviews don't sell records. We said, well, you know, I don't agree with that because a lot of the bands that we discovered early on, a lot of the bands that influenced us were because we read about them through the press. Nils Lofgren had a band called Grin, and we loved that for that album he did called One Plus One back in 1970, maybe it was. Big Star. We were buying Big Star records when they first came out I you love know, Big Star. in 72 and 74. And we would talk about Big Star at the time, 1979. Nobody knew who we were talking right. about. Um, so so er, Emmett Rhodes was another one of those people who recorded everything himself in his in his home studio. Uh, those were the things we really loved and aspired to. So I, I think that uh, I don't know. We're we're kind of uh, you you want people you want to have an audience you want to have commercial success because of the fact that any artist wants their work to be appreciated by the largest number of people. Sure. Um, and, and I will say that almost every band I've worked with a lot of bands in the studio over the years and almost every one of them, I mean, you, sometimes you get the, I want to be rich, man. But for the most part, <laughs> you know, mo for the most part, people just say, I just want to keep doing this. Right. That's, I just want to make enough money to just keep doing make the this. next one, make the next one. Yeah. And that's the way we were a as a band. We're lucky in the sense that we still own all of our recordings, all of our publishing songs. All of that, which which, that was another thing about our Electra deal, was it, we had a clause, a secret clause put in at the time, and they literally it was so secret and different for them that they did not want it part of the original contract, hmm. because they said we we want to honestly say that we've never put this in a contract before, wink wink, so it was a side letter, and what the side letter said was if for some reason your music goes out of print off of our label. The, the rights to license revert back to you. Right. So basically, Which is, no one ever does that. We had our control over our masters. Wow. This is in 1979. Wow. So even though our deal with Electra was severed in 1983, I'm thinking, early 83, late 82, number one, they had to buy us out of the remainder of the contract. So we took that money and built our own commercial studio. Right. But also, Five years later, when CDs became the medium uh, that people were rebuying their record, the entire collections to, we wrote them Electra a letter. And we said, 
we know that our record, our music has been out of print for five years. We'd like the tapes back. Please read this section of this side letter and send right. us our tape. And they sent us everything back. I, I mean, not even just the two-track masters. The, the, the 24-track sure. church tapes that we recorded in England and the ones we did in Los Angeles. and the ones we, you know, So we got all these tapes back. And we were like, yeah, jackpot. <laughs> so we started releasing on Black Vinyl Records, our own label again, right. um, CDs. And this was in 87, 1987. Yeah. And... At that point, independent distribution and independent record stores were happening. I mean, that was great. And we, you know, you could literally, you could sell 10,000 units of almost anything without breathing hard because, because people wanted stuff to play on this new format. Right. So we, we started releasing our back catalog and our new releases as well. Mm. And, um, we released, uh, the, for the first thing on CD from from uh, at that point, then our, our our studio was 16 track. We record recorded an album called Stolen Wishes in 19. Well, we finished it at the end of 1989, but we intentionally held it back until January 2nd so that we could we could literally say it was released in, in the 90s because we thought, wow, you know, it sounds too old world if you say 1980s, but if you say 1990. <laughs> yes. So on January 2nd, we started literally stuffing envelopes with this new record. And um, once again, the press really reacted well. It got a four-star review in Rolling Stone. That really helped perpetuate, and and that's what keeps you going, even when you when you're having a a, a downtime or you, you you have a you know you, a crisis of confidence, as I call it. Sure, um, it's nice to feel that people do appreciate what you've done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think your career could really be seen as having that second act that a lot of artists do not have. If you're lucky enough to get signed, that's wonderful. Uh, and I know f- from personal experience that just because you get signed doesn't mean much of anything. No. <laughs> um, but uh, the fact that you guys made these smart decisions and signed a really good deal uh, meant that you had this opportunity for this sort of second act. Right. And so... Um, before we sort of leave the Electra years behind and talk about your second act, the fact that you guys signed this record and, and started making records right at the beginning of sort of MTV and, and that, I mean, if someone were to, to sort of, I'm, I'm essentially asking you to sort of summarize a little bit about that, that period. We've, we've covered the sort of disastrous live beginnings, yeah. but how do you sort of compartmentalize in your mind with regards to what that experience was like? Because not everybody's experience is the same and you're obviously a fairly unique, but um, if you were to look at the Electra years and say, well, this is really what I take away from that. How would you kind of respond to that? You know, it was, it was the best and the worst years of our lives. Um, we did an interview. We did a, a zoom cast recently with all of us on and uh, the interview held up the cover of different records and said, give me one word that defines this. Uh-huh. And you know, you, as an artist yourself, you know that people, people tie music to a specific time or event in their life. If they, if it fits well in a movie, they remember that visual, which is why MTV is kind of a difficult thing, but because it locks you into an image instead of their own imagination. Sure. But, um, to, to us, the, the, 
the best of times was the fact that we had this, I mean, we're touring the world. My God, we're, 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 we're doing promo tours. We're going to the coasts. We're recording. We recorded the second album. The first album we did in England um, with uh, Mike Stone, who had worked with, with famously with Queen. And then we mixed at Trident Studio, which is where the Beatles did Hey Jude. Oh, yeah. and where it, uh, Bowie did Ziggy Stardust and, and uh, T-Rex did Electric Warrior. Um, and that's the piano that McCartney played on Hey Jude. And we're like, oh, you know, it's just to be in the same room as <laughs> right. this. And then, and then we recorded the second album with Fleetwood Mac's production team. We worked with Richard Dashett, who had, had worked on um, Rumors and um, Tusk. And we just happened, we, we had been in LA and, and we were going to see this band uh, at the Whiskey called uh, Great Buildings, I think they were called. But two of the guys became the Rembrandts. Mm. And um, so we went backstage before the band played to say hi, just introduce ourselves. And there's a bunch of people backstage at the Whiskey we're all mingling and, and talking. And I looked over and I recognized Richard sitting in a chair. Um, and we had wanted him on the first album, but he was busy doing Tusk. And so I, you know, walked over and introduced myself and the band started. So it was really loud. And he, I, I thought he said, how long are you in town for? Or no, I thought he said, how, how long are you in town? Or have you been in town? And I said, only a couple of days. When actually he'd said, how long are you here for? And, I, and then when I heard, I, I said, oh, we're looking for a producer. So, you know, we're all standing around and he was funny. We had a great sense of humor and, and, um, uh, very important. You have to, you have to (laughs) Mike Stone, same thing. You know, it was all about Monty Python with Mike Stone. And, (laughs) and, um, so when we were working with Richard, I mean, literally we would be having lunch and Richard would, would say, shoot me. So you go bang and he'd fall, literally fall with his face into a plate of spaghetti (laughs) just to make you laugh. Um, but so he invited us out to his house, um, in uh, Malibu, we went out there and, and partied. John wrecked his moped oh dear. Uh, at the first meeting, which we thought might not bode well, but uh, Richard, Richard thought it was funny. So uh, we started recording with Richard. So, so it was, I said we had these, and we worked at what became Ocean Way, but it was, it was at the then, and I think now again, it's called United Western, which mm. is where Mamas and the Papas and the Beach Boys and sure. all these great things were done. Again, wow. so you have all these really fantastic memories of, of, being in these places and doing these things. But then you have the downside of, of knowing that the reason that we had videos was because we had worked in England and we could see video was years ahead of where America was. Mm. They had video shows. Oh, we, yeah. we had Midnight Special. You know, it was still people lip syncing, acting like they're playing right. live. And the old gray whistle test. They and had the, yes, Top they, of the Pops. They had all that. And they, they, were, they, they were very into videos yeah. where America hadn't quite figured that out yet. So when we came home, we recorded four videos. We taped four videos in one day, pretty straightforward band performance, standing, yeah. perform, performance style videos, yeah. which thank God for that. Because in retrospect, it would be pretty cheesy to be, you know, trying to be an actor. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, it's very uncomfortable. I, I'm not, none of us are comfortable in front of cameras. Right. And to be in a in a in a video of your song right. where you're interpreting aping. it, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, it locks people into a mindset. You want right. people to interpret in their own way. Sure. So it was great times. Um, it was ugly at the end um, because because partly because the MTV thing was once it happened, we we would go into Electra and say, "Come on, look at this mail. Look at this." Ah, they're saying it's no big deal. MTV's a flash in the pan. Wow. We're not going to we're not going to finance any more videos. And that was the end. So it was short sighted, very really short, very much oh. so. So um, you make 
the smart deal when the electric when they when they buy you out of your electric deal, you use the money to build a studio, and and I'm assuming the idea was to use it to record your own stuff, but also to make some money. And you begin to attract bands from the Chicago area and others. I'm kind of telling your story for you. Why don't you jump in? <laughs> well, that's taken it from there. It, it was actually it wasn't even the thought of of recording other bands wasn't really thought of initially. Oh, we built it as our own studio. Again, you know, being Beatle fans, like the Beatles built their studio in the basement of Apple. We thought let's build our own place because we were we always had a studio. I mean that was before there was a band we had something to record on. Right. So we we needed to have that clubhouse. We needed to have that central point of getting together. So we built um, initially uh, a sixteen track studio, um, not far from where Gary and I lived in the same apartment complex, and it was very very close by. Um, and we built that in eighty three, and but then. We were recording an album, our album Silhouette, which was very experimental record. It was the album previous to it. We had used two twenty-four track tape machines synchronized together, so we had forty-eight tra- or forty-six tracks of usable right. you know, recording. Now we went to sixteen track, so it was a different mindset. We had to think differently. Okay, we got to pare down. We have to, you know, right get creative. Uh, we were experimenting with different. We brought in a keyboard which, which we had never really used before. So it was, there, after we finished that album, there was a lot of downtime at the studio. It's just sitting, all this gear. Why not, why not hire, band, or hire it out to bands? Right. So we started, uh, we put an ad in the Illinois Entertainer and started getting people coming up, coming up from Chicago, which really was surprising because um, we didn't expect that. We thought it would be the local musicians. Mm. And I did, I did do a single... <laughs> Uh, that was another one of those things where I there was a local band literally from Zion that came in and uh, they were called Perfect Stranger. Okay. And um, I was saying to them, well, this is, you know, what we did. Why don't you guys you know, do a single? I'll show you how to press it up. And so we recorded. And I, th- I think it was like we needed to pay the rent that month. So I said, look, give me 600 bucks and I'll give you a single. You know, it was that's kind of how it started. So they came in, you know, we spent, I don't know how many days, two or three days recording. And um, now what do we do? I said, well, you design a, a single sleeve, which was awful. Um, you mean and John didn't do it for him? No, no, <laughs> it was terrible. So, but anyhow, um, I said, you press it up. Here's the pressing plant, press it up. And they did, they released it. And they said, now what do we do? I said, send it out to the press. Try to get an audience. Right. Well, Chris Morris from Billboard, it's his tr- recommended single of the week no kidding. in Billboard. I said to those guys, you don't understand what this means. This is the first thing you guys have ever done. And y- y- there's people at record companies losing their jobs right now because right. you guys got the recommended single and they right. didn't. Right. You know, so, I mean, eventually the band just kind of imploded. But then we started getting other people from the area doing the same kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and then it just kept growing and people were... And so as a studio, we never... We never lacked for work. We were lucky. We always had people coming in. Um, and eventually, I, I don't remember when it was, but it was 85 when Material Issues started working? Yeah, 85. Um, that was at the old studio when it was 16 right. track. And 16 it was track, one, just much, the one inch, whatever yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah. Tascam 80, I don't 80, know how 85, 16 B. 85, 16 B. He knows all the numbers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm a geek. Um Butch. Brilliant geek, though. Oh well, thank. Well, you. that's how we met. We met. I was in. The, I was in Material Issue, and Jim was a champion of 
shoes uh, and really wore the band. I mean, literally had a sticker on his guitar. Yes. Uh, was, was a big champion of the band. And, right. and uh, he wanted to record at your studio. And I was just along for the ride. So this is not my story. This is your story. But I experienced what it was like to drive from Chicago or the Chicago suburbs where Jim and I lived and, and come to Zion. It's a and long drive. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a hike, but it is, it is what, and you had this studio that was kind of long and narrow mm-hmm. that I recall yep. <laughs> memories. Yeah. All there still. But, um, but I think it was for us, there's lots of recording studios in Chicago, but it was, he felt comfortable in this space. He felt comfortable with you specifically. And he wasn't an easy guy to get along with. I think Jim and I, um, and like you said, Jim was, was a a shoe fan, which was great. Um, But even deeper than that was our taste in music was very similar. Aside from, you know, the fact that he knew our music was the fact that if he went back, he liked, he liked, and he didn't care if it was cool. Oh no. He liked the song by the Trogs. Right. Or he liked the song by the grassroots. He didn't care if it was hip. And that I respected him so much for the fact that I knew he was going to take, you know, t- take it uh, crap for that because of the fact that, oh, that's not cool. That's not punk. That's not street. Right. But he didn't care if he liked it. By, sweet. Right. He was a huge sweet fan. Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, they recorded with, with Mike yeah. Chapman eventually. Yeah. But but <laughs> I, I think that's that was the thing. We had a mutual appreciation of things. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that shoe sticker that he had on his guitar on the yeah. album cover. Um, the label whited it out. I know they did. I was I was always. I think yeah. he was mad about it too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They whited out where it said shoes. <laughs> I know. But if you have the the twelve inch single, it's still he still left on it there. on that. Yeah. They left it on that. But but that was a th- and Jim was a great salesman for the studio because you know how Jim was. If Jim was into it, it was the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. So so Jim Jim advertised for us just by to his musician friends sure. and would say you guys yeah you guys got to go up and work with jeff up at, at uh, everybody in town he 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 was this type of person who really wanted to be a part of that community and and even though he was making pretty much straight ahead poppy music he wanted to be a part of that that alternative scene or that punk scene or whatever he wanted that credit credibility uh famously uh, one of the covers that uh, Material Issue did when I was in the band was Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town by Kenny Rogers in sort of a punk rock way. Uh, and I think we only know two thirds of the song. We, we kind of, there was a bit that we just, you know. <laughs> he did the boxer that right. way too. <laughs> he did the boxer the same way. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah he knew about a, four lines of the song and then we Truncated versions. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he was a good, but you then tapped into this you know, this scene and, and artists started to come to Zion and the studio, we kind of came, uh, you know, a, kind of a business. Uh, what yeah, was that? What it, was that it, like? It became, I mean, I, I, that's all I did then besides shoes and, and, and producing other people. And uh, it, it started to get for me. Um, I mean, what I had said to you earlier today was, was that, when I worked with a band, I, I would do everything I could to make it sound like a record. That's what they always say. Make it sound like a record. Right. Whatever that is. So regardless of how uh, prolific they were or how much money they had, I always tried to make, and that's part of the problem that we had with the studio was I could never let it go. I couldn't just bring in some guy that was training and have him fill the hours from two o'clock to six o'clock in the morning because I wanted the reputation of the studio to be consistent and I wanted everyone to get the best possible and and I couldn't let go of the studio to do that. So if I wasn't there, it wasn't. No one was, you know, working. Mm. So um, 
but Jim would talk to these people and and I would get all these bands that would come in and work and it I loved it. And like you said, it wasn't it's it's funny cuz cuz uh, I guess they call it power pop, but pop music, melodic rock, whatever you want to call it, it's kind of the bastard child of of punk and of of rock music because it's looked down upon as being fey or cheap or cheesy. And you just go, you know, in my book, Foo Fighters are, are power pop. Tom yeah. Petty is power pop. Oh, yeah. Fleetwood Mac is power pop, at least Lindsay's songs. Right. You know, so to me, it's a very wide shovel. And like like I had said earlier, the Beatles, you take Helter Skelter, that wouldn't really fit into most people's definition of power pop. No. And neither would the song Yesterday. Or, sure. or or Blackbird, but Blackbird and Helter Skelter appear on the same album. That is the the that's the problem with I guess you would say uh, definitions. Sure, categories. It's, categories. Yeah. This is the pigeonhole that you see. nobody nobody f- neatly fits into it. You know, because then if they do, it's boring. They float in in and out of it. The last album that we did. Um, Ignition. Yeah. I don't want to say the last because it makes it sound like we're not going to do another. But a most recent album that we did, we had a song on there, which was the last song we recorded for the album was called Hot Mess. Yeah, which is a rock too. It was fun. We we had Wait, so who's much Who's singing fun. that one? Is that you? It depends. It I depends. mean, John's singing the verse. You guys I'm, are known I'm, for your sort of schoolboy, and whoever's singing that is. I'm singing the chorus. Is that right? Oh, yeah. man. It's, I'm singing the chorus. It's hardcore. And yeah. John's singing harmony. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was one of those things where we're literally. The, the album was done. We had 14 songs ready. And then Gary goes, look, I know we don't need another song, but I've I got these chords. What do you think? And he, he had done some chords to a drum track. And I said, plug me in. I know what I'm going to do. And literally, he plugged me in. I, I heard in my head what I wanted to play. And as I'm, and I'm sitting in the control room, you know, in the, and we had the amp, the head in the control room and the amp in the other room, the bottom yeah. mic. And as I'm playing along, John is sitting next to me writing lyrics and the melody. He says, I know what I'm going to sing. And it, it came together that quickly. And, and uh, John's lyrics were filthy, but funny. <laughs> and that was the whole point. He was trying to make us laugh. Right. And I came home, Lori, my wife said, when I got home at like two in the morning, she said, you were still laughing when you got home from the studio <laughs> that night. And we caught slack for that because it didn't fit into that right. power pop it, category. You said, oh, yeah. that's more Stonesy. Right. I said, Hey man, I'm I'm as much I grew up on the Stones as much sure. as, as I did the Beatles. So so that's all in there. It's just a matter of when it comes out. Right. And, I mean, we made a point in the exhibit that power pop as a subgenre of rock, if you want to say, yes, was worthy of making a second a separate section only because I guess we're making the argument that it was sort of Midwest grown that sort of don't bore us, get to the chorus that, you know, that super hook type stuff, that cheap trick champion initially. And you guys, of course, carry the torch. You guys have had to kind of carry that label. I'm imagining at the time when you're first making your first records, you're not thinking, Oh, I think this is a really good power pop tune. That term really wasn't used at the time, right? For us, it was, we want to hear more of this. This is what we love. This is what we want to hear more of. Right. I want to hear more of that paperback writer kind of, to me, that was sort of the beginning of that feel of that kind of slightly grungy guitar, 
you know, cause that's 1966. And yet this cool melody, a little bit of techno f- craft on top of there with the slap echo and paperback writer. It had all the elements for me as a, as a listener to, to just hook me in and rain the flip side. Right. To me, that was the beginning of power pop. Sure. Um, but in general, we wanted to make music that we liked. This is what I want to listen to. So this is what I want to give to everyone else. Right. There was no, ca- I mean, I, at the time, uh, Todd Rundgren was a big influence on us, and and the song, the album, something anything, where he recorded everything himself on the first three sides. That's right in our wheelhouse, right? Um, but a lot of that wouldn't be con- considered power pop either. Even though, couldn't I just tell you is one of the absolute classic power pop songs, right? A song like "Slut," maybe not so much, That's but it's on the same album. Right. You know? Yeah, and so. I have checked in with you over the years and, and there's been long gaps between, uh, uh, and I remember touching base with you. I can't even remember what it was, but you were full of juice because you had this, uh, opportunity to go to Japan mm. sort of later in your career. And I'm using finger quotes, but, yep. um, and, uh, you know, again, this is a, a scenario where you're living, I guess at the time you're, you're in Wisconsin now, or maybe you weren't in, right. I can't yeah. remember where yeah, you were yeah, living I was, I, We were, li- yeah, we'd all moved uh, just slightly across the border into Wisconsin. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, you had this opportunity to go to Japan uh, and, and I mean, that just doesn't happen. You've got, you're, you're, you're living your life, you're doing your stuff and you have your dormant phases and suddenly, how did this come about? What was that experience like? You know, um, the wonderful thing I, I've, I've said to, to my wife, Lori, several times, I, what I love about making, one of the things I love about making music is that musicians are some of the nicest people. And they're so giving. And we became friends with um, uh, Al, Al Chan, who was the bass player in the band, the Rubenus from, from Zerkley Records. From, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm from I San love Francisco. Them. And um, so we were, I mean, he got a great voice, that boy, oh, yeah. he can sing. Anyhow, we, so we were conversing back and forth and he said, hey, the Rubinos just got back from Japan and they love you guys over there. Why don't you go over and do a tour? And I said, well, that sounds like fun. And see, that's the thing about shoes is it's not that we're anti-live. It's just that something has to be fun or there, there's, we always say there's one of three reasons to do it. Either it's, it's something we've never done before and, and it's fun and an experience or or there's some kind of career advancement in some way. Um, this this fell into the category of never done it before in fun. Yeah. And so he he hooked us up with the guy that that put their tour together. And the guy says, oh, I would love to have you guys come over. He said, um, and the deal was, I mean, it's expensive to get just to get over there. Right. Yeah. So he said, uh, we pay all your expenses. We put you up in hotels. Um, you get 100% of the merch, but um, we can't pay you for the show itself. All right. So you sit down and you go, well, the hotels would be this much for a week and, and the merch was going to be ringing this much. So, and the flights are going to be this much. So yeah, we'll take that deal. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so no matter how many people show up to your show, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, and it was fantastic. That's awesome. It was fantastic. I mean, it wasn't Budokan or anything, <laughs> but it was wonderful. The people were so nice. I, again, I got home. I said to my wife, it renewed my, my faith in humanity when I see uh, I said, you know, we're in, I've been to New York a number of times and, and, and he, this is my first time in Tokyo. I said, we're there for a week. I never heard one horn honk. And really? I laughed and said something to our host and he goes, oh, that would be considered rude. <laughs> <laughs> said, and? Yes. So, so it, it, it's one of those things where 
it's one of those things where it it was reinvigorating in so many ways as a band. Um, it was a bonding thing between the three of us again to do th- something together. Um, so all in all, it was just, you know, and, and those are the things that happened. Even the, the most recent show that we did, we played at the Arcata Theater in, yeah. in St. Charles, which is, we don't play in Illinois that often, but, um, and that came up because when we were in, we had been asked to play at the um, 40th anniversary uh, for the um, uh, Trouser Press magazine. They were having a party. Uh, a couple of years ago, and they said, hey, uh, Dwight Tooley's going to f- uh, um, headline on Friday night. Would you guys want to headline on Saturday? Oh, that's awesome. And we said, sure, because Ira Robbins, who was the publisher of the publication, was, was a, a big supporter and fan. So we said, sure, Ira, for you, we'd absolutely. So we went and did that, and, and, and we were staying at the same hotel as, as Dwight, and he said, we should do a show together. Well, mm-hmm. three years later, he was doing a show in, in Illinois and said, hey, we're going to play it at the Arcana. You guys want to play too? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I love Dwight Twilley. Salt in My Tears, great, great tune. I mean, he's got a great voice, too. Uh, yeah. Dwight? Dwight Twilley. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm on fire. What a great, yeah. you know, great power pop Good. tune. Yeah, super great. So uh, you talked a little bit about already that you're constantly recording or, or, or occasionally recording or however it's working in your normal lives now. Um, it's been a while since Ignition came out. You know, what do you, I mean... You already talked about how you really don't know what to do, but if I'm going to if I'm going to press you to say, you know, other than doing that, what are your hopes? What would um, you like to do? I, I mean, I, I we all all three of us definitely want to get some new shoe music out there. Um, the the conflict is is how do we do it? Do we do a song at a time, which which is is great and perfect for a band like us that records. You pop it up and have it downloaded and stream- streamable tonight. Right. But it doesn't satisfy that th- three-writer thing right? that we, we try to maintain. So we've talked about, um, I suggested a, a couple months ago that we do a not an LP, not an EP, a 3P. You know, where, <laughs> where we, we have like three songs, one by each of us. Uh-huh. Um, I know that Gary, the other, you know, Gary, Cleve, yes. the other guitar player, yeah. has, has a complete solo album ready, recorded. He's got a video for it. He just has not released it because of this issue. And You've already done a solo record. I've done a solo in the past. Yeah. I, did, I did one when we, we sold our, our studio, the 24-track studio, in uh, 2004 because we could see the digital writing on the come. wall. <laughs> yes, we could see that. <laughs> And we decided to sell, and now that gear is worth so much more money, all the analog gear we had. Oh, wow. But now you can record that stuff at home. So Gary installed a studio at his house. I installed a rig at my house. And um, the first thing we did was um, a Cheap Trick song. We we thought it would be fun. We were asked to do something for a a tribute album that never, the the album never really uh, came to fruition. But we went ahead and did the song sort of as an experiment to see can we record at home again? Um, did some files at my house. Gary did some stuff at his house. Nice. We brought it over, flew it in. Um, I, I've still got flying faders at my house. I mean, oh, I'm still an, I'm a tactile guy. Yeah. But um, and so I mixed it at home, uh, and we released that in uh, that was 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, I there's one of those in there too, by the way. Awesome. Thing. Um, the um, it was an experiment to see, does this digital thing work? Can we do this? Can we bounce things back and forth? Yeah. And recently, there's been a lot of that going on. I mean, we've been tr- tr- doing tracks for other people. I'm, uh, 
Matthew Sweet's bass player, when he tours, uh, Paul Chastain and I have been doing some things together. Uh, he's in Japan. As a matter of fact, quarantined in Japan now because they're not allowing people in or out. Oh, boy. But we've been sending files back and forth and doing a couple songs. I think we've got, I don't know, maybe two or three that we've we've got done or close to it. And um, um, my friend Bill Kelly out in L.A., same thing. He's been sending tracks back and forth. Right. I was in Elmhurst College a couple of weeks ago recording uh, for a, a friend of mine who used to be a professor at um, at uh, Harper College. Yeah. I would go down and speak during their his Beatle class. He would have a, a Beatle class and ask me to talk. <laughs> and um, he has a band called Athenor, uh, which is sort of a, a, a kind of a sort of a seventies feel throwback folk psychedelic pop. Oh, wow. thing, which I I love all that stuff. Sure, like. sure. So he asked uh, if I would sing and play. So went into Elmhurst College at the studio down in the basement. That's there. my alma mater, by the way. Yeah, and <laughs> we recorded a couple of songs. That's coming out shortly. That's fun. Um, I just did a track. Got a contacted from some guy from Romania, who's a shoes fan, and said his mother was a big shoes fan and turned him on to it. And now his thing was, and he said she's died unfortunately oh. in the meantime. But I want to do this as a tribute. And would you, would you play on one of my songs? I said sure. You know, so he sent me some tracks and did that. Oh, that's lovely. So there've been a lot of little things going on. I, I re-released the book that I had written about being in England and recording that first album and, and the early days of shoes. Right. Uh, uh, it was the 40th anniversary of that recording, so I released that, reissued that book as a both an ebook and a hard copy. Um, I released that. Uh, it's on Amazon. And, um, oh yeah, last week, um, I don't know if you know the band, the flash cubes, uh, I'm familiar. Yeah. Tommy Allen, uh, just said, Hey, we're going to do a, um, as a band, we're going to do a bunch of, uh, cover songs that we were influenced by. One of those songs is, is tomorrow night by shoes. Right. Would song. you be, would you be up for maybe you guys doing background vocals on it or, or, or do give me that guitar solo sound that you had <laughs> on the original? I said, sure, send the tracks over. That'd be fun. So you're doing this all in the cloud, or they send you the files, yeah. large file transfer, or yep. whatever it is they're doing. and Dropbox. And or, it all works with your software and their yep. software somehow. Okay, yes. that's just marvelous. Yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the great thing about digital, is it allows you to do so many things that you could never do before. Um, one, one thing that I just did recently, one of the guys that was on our road crew um, had been in a, a prog rock band. And I remember distinctly recording that band and they had a song that was 20 minutes long <laughs> as you do when you're in a program yeah, yeah and um <laughs> they were in the studio but at the time Lori was getting a little upset the fact that i was spending so much time in the studio <laughs> and she goes you say you're gonna be home at six and you don't get home till late i said i'm gonna try i'm gonna try so we made plan dinner plans with this other couple i said i will absolutely i'm i, I promise you i will be out by six so we can go to dinner okay well now now I'm mixing this 20-minute song <laughs> for this prog rock band, and I can look at the clock, and it's 5.30, and I'm, okay. And I had to do it in one pass. You know, it wasn't like, oh, go back, go back at middle section. It was like I had to remember all these moves because it was before automation and, right. and, and all that stuff. So I mixed this 20-minute this song in one pass. I literally said, okay, that's it. Thanks, guys. Leadered the tape, cut it to him, gave them, and they walked out because I had a session the next day. Everything was going to be struck. Right. There was no way it was, it was like, come back tomorrow and we'll finish. It was finish it right. And I, so I called the guy up and I apologized. I said, look, and he says, man, I don't even remember. It sounded great to me. <laughs> so I and you made I, dinner. Yeah. Well, that's and, and I got to dinner at Absolutely. the same time. But I was really, it bothered me all that. I mean, that was, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> Well, thank you again for doing this, Jeff. It's been lovely to to revisit some of these shared memories. But thank you, Lance. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of, of shoes forever, and and it's been a big part of. Uh, it was you know when we set about to do this exhibit, it 
you know, we knew that we wanted to tell these stories. And I think part of what we want to do, if people walk in and they're not fans or they don't even know the music genre, the idea was to open their eyes a little bit, make them feel if they're from Illinois, give them a sense of pride. Oh my God, I never knew all these bands were from Illinois. And if they're not familiar with it, find, you know, give them a discovery opportunity to go and listen to it on Spotify or where, however they get their music now. And, and for us, it's, it's, I see it purely as a celebration of the music from our state. And in many cases, you know, there are, there are music genres that don't fall into rock and roll. And that's fine because I think music is subjective, like we've been talking about. And I may very well, uh, you know, you know, connect to a particular type of music, but being exposed to this type of things, I think, the, the idea of making a little backstage journey through our space. And right now the idea was you, you sort of emerged the back door and, and the, the patron experience is that actually we have a crowd noise uh, sound effect as you leave the backstage, as if you're entering sort of life stage and we right. have a big mural of a crowd greeting you as you exit this backstage space. And that was kind of what we were hoping. We were, we were hoping that we were sort of arming these people with, this, this story and these stories of, uh, of music from Illinois to take with them, you know, when they go. And so thank you so much for uh, loaning us the artifact and sharing your story and being sort of a part of our, our exhibit. Uh, it's my pleasure. I mean, even though bands uh, of all sorts um, get, get uh, segmented, like we were talking about earlier, it, it, we all really are the same in the sense that we have that you have that in your blood that you just want to make music. You love making music. I mean, even if it's not something that you're known for, if you, you if it's more, uh, you know, rap or R and B or or it's more Stones than Beatles, who's not going to pick up a tambourine and play along if they get the opportunity with whatever genre that you you, you just love it as a as a person a person that appreciates music. And so it's fantastic to see it all in one location. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the State of Sound podcast produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. To hear other episodes and more information about the exhibit, The State of Sound, A World of Music from Illinois, visit musicfromillinois.com.